Hello and welcome to the Transformative Podcast with me, Rosmond Johnston. Today we're talking to a colleague, Till Hilmar, who is in the Sociology Department here at the University of Vienna. And he's just brought out a very good new book titled Deserved Economic Memories After the Fall of the Iron Curtain with Columbia University Press. So, Till, first of all, congratulations on the book and thank you also for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Super. Okay, now, you have said in our discussion leading up to this podcast that you find a lot of the discussion taking place in Germany about 1989 and the transformation period that followed very insular. And so what you propose in this book is a comparison between the Czech case and the German case. So my first question for you is how does our understanding of the German and also the Central European process of transformation improve by undertaking such a comparison? There's a lot of talk in Germany about the 90s and the negative economic and demographic effects of the 90s um, and the transition to the market economy there. There's also this discussion about the devaluation of East German biographies or Lebensleistung, as sometimes um, people call it. But it can be a pretty self-centered debate. And so I think by comparing the East German and the Czech case, we can actually get a lot of new information because these two societies, so that's one of the historical arguments in my book, in fact, shared many aspects of daily life during state socialism. And I think it's a problem if you have one country talking about itself here, because we should be looking at processes like, like multiple historical processes, like deindustrialization, demographic change, the rise of nationalism. So these things that we can basically observe across Central Eastern Europe today, we don't just find them in one country. And so that's why I think that this comparative angle is particularly important. And the argument that I'm making here is that um, we should be exploring the memories of the 90s and in particular the what I call economic memories of the 90s to get a better sense of, of that problem. Now I wanted to ask you about the central category of your book, Deservingness, or things that are deserved. What do you think the way that people talk about deservingness shows us about post-socialist transformations and the way that they played out in the Czech Republic and Germany. Deservingness is about how people talk about economic outcomes in moral terms. So you can deserve your job or your travels, your status in society, but it's also about deserving certain people. So that's, that's kind of what I'm trying to explore in this book. So there's a moral claim of having what you could say is like a legitimate economic biography after 1989 in the new market society. And people kind of lay this moral claim on their social environment and they want others to share and support their own assumptions about what it means to, to be like a good and productive member of society. So this kind of economic uh, imagination, it comes to express personal worth and people want others, and especially those who are close to them, to share those ideas. So deservingness is, on the one hand, you could say, so there's a lot of literature and social comparison, social psychology, which says, okay, people, when they try to make sense of their own location in society, they, they compare themselves to others. And, but, but, and this is very interesting, but what I'm trying to do is to, to say, okay, so there are certain types of social relationships that are even more important because they have a history, they have like a, a moral significance, uh, such as friendship ties, and it's particularly important to look at them if you want to understand what it is that people actually care about in terms of this link between the economic and the social. 
My understanding is that you've taken two professional groups in both countries, so healthcare workers on the one hand and engineers on the other. Uh, do you find that there are differences in the way that these two professional groups discuss deservingness, i.e. does professional status somehow inflect views of deservingness? I was particularly interested in two groups. I expect to have different experiences here, so the, the so engineers typically are well a male profession that's not quite the case for the for the late socialist um, societies but that's also interesting but there is a gender dynamic certainly care workers healthcare workers that is an overwhelmingly female profession so there's a gender difference here which is interesting and then also so if, if so these professions kind of they they represent a certain worldview in a way and they do share narratives economic those narratives about economic change in a way and so they do share aspirations of social mobility after 1989 um, and so that's to, to look at those expectations um, from the perspective of of course these individuals who I talked to so I did an interview study with people talking about their biographies so this is about their individual experiences but on the other hand I'm interested in trying to find those patterns shared interpretations of economic change one thing that I might want to say here so um, because this book is also trying to understand people's reasoning about justice and injustice. And so this is quite interesting to, to, to think about engineers as a group that has a particular idea about what it means to be productive in society in a way. So that so engineers care about the product, the outcome and the process. By, so the process has to be like a well-running machine or like an, an, a nicely drawn sketch of a building, things like that. Um, and so they, they, they have like a very much a, a, a very profound understanding of what good, well-done work actually looks like. And that, of course, th those ideas about work matter in the context of these like rupturing economic changes. And it's similar for care workers, that they have a very clear understanding of what, what it means to be a good healthcare worker, like spending, having enough time to actually listen to your patients, performing these different roles in relating to someone's needs. And all of these things are kind of under pressure in the moment of these kind of economic large scale changes when you have like the commodification of healthcare work, you have less time, less hospital capacities, the shrinking of these institutions. Now you've suggested that transformation processes at the time and subsequently have left their mark on people's very closest friendships. So I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more how concretely they impacted friendships. We have scores and scores of studies that that show, not just for this context that we're talking about, but in general, um, that the one thing that is kind of the, the most important predictor of people's satisfaction in life is a healthy social environment, right? And so, in a way, it's it's not it's not so um, surprising to to, uh, to, if, to to look at social relationships if you want to understand how people were coping with an uh, with an massive economic changes. And then, of course, why why friendship ties? So friendship as I mentioned earlier, so there's something about relations of equality changing from the late socialist period into the 90s. So this problem of renegotiating equality and, and specifically I was interested in those kinds of relationships that were, where there's, an, there's a, a moment of reciprocity, equality, people feel a certain obligation and they have to negotiate these different economic trajectories 
within those existing social relationships. So that's and, and the way they do it. And there are interesting examples of, I mean, there's a lot of, there's solidarity, of course, people, someone I talked to telling me about had this former friend of his who was unlucky in the 90s, couldn't really get back on his feet. That's a phrase that I, you get to hear a lot in the interviews, but that he's still trying to, to sort of include this person today in, in shared activities, but he has to negotiate this by, for instance, not talking about the travels that he's doing with other people who can actually afford to go on some cruise ships or whatever. There's a tension here in terms of how pe these people from their time back then and how they sort of carry these relationships into the present, that it, when people talk about this, so what I, what I find is that they, they reveal a lot about the, how they think about their own social location in society. And so what I also did in this book is to, to specifically look at episodes um, of broken friendship ties. So because that is a moment when people are renegotiating sort of their ideas of social belonging, who they want to be associated with, and, and, and what that has to do with kind of these kind of economic ideas that they have. And there are lots of stories like that, especially in the East German case. In the Czech case, there's less I find I found less. Um, this was less an issue. People were telling more more about continuities. You discussed there how maybe friendships you noticed sort of the rupturing, the breaking of certain friendships in the situation of increased inequality after 1989. But I wonder if there's sort of new possibilities for solidarity and kind of social glue between people created by the processes of transformation that followed the revolution. Do you see sort of a rearrangement with perhaps new solidarities or is this really a story of kind of social fragmentation that you're capturing overall? There is certainly, there are new social attachments, absolutely. So if you look at like civil society developments or places where people actually meet and, and, and sort of form ties, one thing that we can see, it, I mean, the East German case is really quite uh, problematic in that sense that you, you see like people kind of retreating from organizations first in the 90s and things haven't developed as much as uh, it would have been important for like a civil society to grow there. And of course, there's, there's this problem of distrust, which also matters in, in these interpersonal relationships. Less of an issue in the Czech Republic there, you have a pretty vibrant civil society, of course. And so I guess what I want to what I want to say here, and I'm I'm kind of rooting this in the empirical findings that we have about these actual network changes, is that this is not about people becoming completely individualized. So and it's not about them losing all of their ties in the 90s. This is really about more subtle changes and some specific changes being very important. Uh, also, also retrospectively, like some, some, so that so they imbue some of these ruptures with a lot of meaning, and that doesn't mean that they lost everyone or that they kind of, you know, or that that's why I'm I'm kind of um, not not calling it. The, the, I mean, typically we would think about the the process of markets uh, formation as individualization, and of course that's right, but it's not right in terms of that people are no people are actually going through this period as part of a social arrangement, and there are certain some changes and we need to understand those i would say and not just think about it as a kind of complete fragmentation so that's that's what i want to show by giving people the space to talk about those particular rupturing changes 
to what extent do you think that the findings that you have come to here can be extrapolated to help us understand how people deal with crisis more generally? So uh, to what extent is, is what you find rooted in the 1990s, rooted in Central Europe? And to what extent can you offer us perhaps some kind of ways of thinking through how people have responded to the pandemic or ongoing climate change? I want to maybe start by answering what you just mentioned about to what extent is this actually rooted in the historical context that because I do think that this is really important and the way I do it in this book is to look into the late socialist societies of East Germany and uh, Czechoslovakia and I'm drawing on, on, on social history there and the finding that these were of course politically frozen societies with uh, in fact a dominant social conservatism that kind of set the stage, provided the kind of moral background against which people then experienced in the 90s. So that's really important. So what is the kind of the moral background? And that is a sociological term by Gabriel Avent that people have and, and, and kind of resort to when they, when they, when they kind of enter this, this, this disruptive crisis period, which is the, the 90s here, that shapes their responses, of course. And then, then second to your question about what can we learn about inequalities and maybe crisis, how people think about crisis. So um, what I'm trying to do in this book is to look at the long-term effects of a profound uh, social change. And on the one hand, I mean, we are still surprised maybe that the 90s are matter so much today Politically, I mean, this is in a way surprising, right? I mean, this is uh, more than 30 years ago, and but we can see how a lot of these nationalist movements and, and of course, uh, the Russian weaponization of the past, so the discourses about and the memory wars about the 90s are really crucial to a lot of the political dynamics in Central Eastern Europe today. How does these, like, these outcomes of these crises either empower or weaken people's agency, sense of agency, their sense of autonomy, uh, that, that is really important and to understand how they construct their own stories around these events um, it gives us a sense also of, of their sense of justice. And I think that this will probably give us a better understanding of uh, the, political, the political outcome, the political subjectivity here than just thinking about this person in terms of their whatever their social structural criteria or even maybe in terms of their membership in some kind of conspiracy group all right till hilmar thank you very much for joining us today and it's goodbye from me rosamund johnston join us again next time for another edition of the transformative podcast